Welcome, all you adventurous readers, to the epic worlds of Alfred Durblin, where we explore the life and works of this fascinating but little-known early 20th century writer, brought to you by the website beyondalexanderplatz.com. Okay, whenever you're ready. Okay, welcome everyone to episode five of our podcast. Um, in this episode, we're going to look at Dublin's life in the few years before to the few years after the First World War, roughly 1912 to 1922. Fantastic. So we're going to continue focusing on his life then and his activities as a writer and the participant in the cultural life of the early 20th century Germany. Um, so in our first episode, we did a biography of him. We looked um, up to um, 1900, so when he left school and began to study medicine. Yeah, um, yeah. so we're, we're leaving a little bit of a gap. I mean, we can allude to that first decade of the uh, 20th century when he was, he was really, as you said, he withdrew from the struggle for so-called existence by uh, working in hospitals, doing laboratory work in the evenings, and basically just, you know, looking around and thinking how how do human beings really behave? How much does medicine really understand about human beings? Mm -hmm. um, but the from a literary point of view, the interesting period then becomes from about 1912, when he had this dam burst of creative energy. And that was for the three leaps of Wang Lun. Um, yes, that was the first big production from this enormous release of mental energy that he'd been accumulating for the previous decade. Ah, oh, okay. So um, we know that he is newly married to Erna. Yes. So in, in, in 1912, yes, he gets married at the beginning of the year. His, uh, the first son born to him and Erna comes along in October of, of 1912. Um, he's researching very vigorously for this uh, topic that he's, he's, he's chewing over inside, exploring museums and, uh, and the literature and so on, getting a sense of, 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 of how to shape his epic story for, for Wang Lun. Mm -hmm. He's also very busy engaging with the, uh, the avant-garde in Berlin, which was very vigorous uh, from about 1910 onwards. New journals being founded. He helped found the leading journal called Der Sturm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there were two big art exhibitions of modernist art, mm -hmm. which affected uh, Dublin very greatly. He was extremely enthusiastic about the, uh, the way that artists were putting together kind of lots of um, clashing collages of mm -hmm. all, the, all the different influences that modern life was finding itself uh, mm -hmm. affected by. So he's uh, in at the centre, really, of this um, creative energy, um, surrounded by like-minded people. I wouldn't necessarily say like-minded people because they were a very disparate bunch. Okay. Um, and he engaged in very vigorous polemics in the pages of Der Sturm with uh, the leading Italian futurist writer called Marinetti, who was very excited by aeroplanes and racing cars and wars and dropping bombs on people and, right. and so on. And uh, Dublin eventually um, posted a very vigorous essay uh, saying, well, you you guard your futurism, I'll tend my Dublinism, because he thought the the whole approach to where modernist writing should be leading to, mm -hmm. uh, Marinetti was uh, going down a false path. 
Okay. Um, and Dublin's idea was that the the text should be uh, as concise as possible and as uh, um, well, he says as as free from images as possible because the words have to do the work. If you're if you're introducing similes and so on, then the reader has to start trying to think. Well, how does that link up with this other thing and so on? So it's the writer's job now to set things down as clearly as possible to represent the reality of the world that the text is supposed to be representing. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, that's that's really interesting because especially when we're teaching creative writing at schools, you know, we we look out for the like, do they have metaphors? Do they contain similes? Da, 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 da. So it's interesting the the route that he was taking then. Yes, and it'd be interesting to follow through in his writings how far he himself kept in his creative writing mm -hmm. to the theoretical precepts that he was setting down in these uh, in these essays. Right. Okay, and so how did he, um, how, so how far did Wang Lun provide kind of a test bed for those ideas? Oh, very, it was very firmly it was a test bed because the, it was the first major work of fiction produced by anybody within this circle of all these fermenting uh, modernist ideas, you know, mm -hmm. whether meeting in cafes and clashing and exchanging ideas on what modern art should be doing and, mm -hmm. and so on and a lot of very short form poems for example or little short form sketches mm -hmm. Wang Lun was the first long form epic work of literature yeah. coming out of this ferment and can we just remind readers when we we're talking about sorry listeners not readers readers as well but listeners of the podcast how long is Wang Lun in, in, in terms of pages uh, for an epic? It's about, well, let's say 500 pages. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. And um, are we coming up to the outbreak of war? Yes. Um, of the First World War? The First World War, yes. Yeah, so it's very interesting because uh, from August to December of 1914, I mean, the war broke out in early August, but mm -hmm. from August to December of 1914, um, Dublin wrote another novel. Oh, wow. Not, a, not an epic as such. It was a more kind of 200-page typical uh -huh. length novel, but with some very kind of strange uh, characters in it. It was uh, very recently translated by um, Anne Thompson, who mm -hmm. self-published it on Amazon. Okay. Uh, so if you can look for it there. This is called Vadsek's Fight Against the Steam Turbine, I think oh. she translated it. Yes. Wow. And he'd originally thought of this as the first of a series of novels the next one would be um the fight against the petrol engine or <laughs> which he, he abandoned it anyway he went into other directions interesting um but there yeah, no he uh, he volunteered for the army in december uh because he realized that if he volunteered he should be entitled to an officer's pay being a professional doctor mm -hmm. um, if he'd waited to be called up mm. he'd be called up as a private and there'd be a huge difference in the So he's quite in savvy in, you know... Well, you know, he's, he's, got, he's got a family to look after that's, now. That's exactly what I yeah. was going to say. Yeah, yeah, he's looking out for his family. Yeah, and it, and it turned out, once he, he, he got posted off to um, uh, Alsace-Lorraine, or mm -hmm. Alsace-Lotringen, in mm -hmm. this kind of quasi-colony that Germany took over in 1871, right. even though it had been French for a few hundred years before that, mm -hmm. um, so he was posted down there in what's now the far northeast corner of France. Um, 
to discover that the, uh, the the army didn't really know how to treat him because supposedly, according to the law, every year group of young men mm -hmm. was liable to be called up for a year's national service right. at some point. Yes. Well, the 1878 cohort had never been called up. Oh. And so he was arriving here in an army uniform. And he'd had no military no training whatsoever. Gosh. And they kept saying, oh, no, no, you have to go off to the, uh, you know, the, 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 the bureaucracy that deals with the, um, the one year conscripts and so on. And, oh. Oh. <laughs> so he was he was sort of left. I, I'm, I'm really not quite sure what happened to him in terms of salary and so on. But he wasn't promoted to be an assistant doctor uh -huh. until right at the end of the war. So, uh, you know, this, um, so, this uh, annoyed him considerably. Just to, to clear clear up in my mind then, so he what, he enlisted as a medical doctor. A professional a, an, medical a officer. A military doctor. Yes. Got you. Yes. Okay, that and makes more sense. I was thinking, <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, how do you do that if you don't have any experience? But yes, that makes a lot more yeah. sense. <laughs> no, and of course, the, you know, I mean, the army was desperately short of doctors, of course. Yes. So at that time, you know, the fighting on the Western Front was bedding down into its four years of slaughter. Um, and you've got fighting yeah. on two fronts. Uh, well, there as yes, well, I mean, so you've I got think Russia was, as well as France. He was quite fortunate that he was never posted to the other direction. But, you know, quite a lot of uh, army units and things were sort of sent backwards and forwards mm. from, you know, one front and why, to the other. Why do you say he was fortunate that he wasn't posted to the other front? Because um, in 1915, Erna came from Berlin to join him in uh, Zagemund, where he was posted. Um, along with their second son, mm -hmm. who'd been born in the interim. And then in, I think it was 1917, the, the third son was born to them. So, you know, the, so the, the family, family, the family were there with him in, oh. in this hospital town, yes. All oh, right. So, okay, yeah. that's really interesting. And so they're forging their, their way together, forging a path together. Um, and what effect did... Um, I, I want to kind of go on now to uh, 1916... So Wang Lun has been published. Yes, eventually it was it was distributed in early 1916 and mm -hmm. drew lots of reviews, um, mostly pretty enthusiastic and wondering, you know, was this actually a translation from the Chinese? Mm -hmm. You know, had had the writer lived for many decades in China? You mm -hmm, know, so mm -hmm. the kind of the authenticity, the the reality that was coming through the text by this writer who'd never been closer to China than the Museum of Anthropology in, right. in Berlin. So, wow. yeah, so um, this was a good testament to his his working method of, of delivering his reality research. to the reader yeah. through, through you know, the, 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 the really, you know, targeted notation using words and adjectives and nouns in the proper places to bring bring much. out a, 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 a very solid world mm, very much so so it's you would say it did certainly cement his reputation as a writer it, well it, it it alerted a lot of people to this up-and-coming well he was almost 40 at this time of course mm -hmm. but this up-and-coming writer it was obviously a significant figure mm -hmm. so I mean for example the editors of journals now started pestering him for um, contributions and mm -hmm. um, essays and uh, and so on. And all <clears throat> this time, war is still raging. Oh, the on. war is raging. They could. He, he, they were within earshot of the guns of Verdun. Uh, you know about the Battle of Verdun. I, I, I don't. Know. Right. Well, for almost the um, for a whole year, um, the German high command mm -hmm. had the intention of bleeding the French army to death. Goodness. by forcing them to defend 
this uh, kind of way into central France, right. around Verdun. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were bringing huge numbers of troops and artillery and, and trying to bash it. And the French realised that if they lost this pass, you know, mm-hmm. the Germans were going to come around the back and, uh, and uh, you know, they'd, they'd probably be defeated. Mm-hmm. And so they were, they were pouring equal numbers of, of soldiers and artillery and things to beat off the Germans. And the, the entire battle um, lost something like, you know, almost a million men. Oh, my goodness. There's a, you know, there's Gosh. a very moving um, kind of memorial set mm. out around there. In, in one building, it's called the Ossuary, right, from the Latin os, meaning a bone. Right. Because this is just, it, it, it's been, you know, sculpted masses around the walls of wow. uh, skulls and leg bones and, Ooh, and, and, and things. Yes, it's, it's very moving, very grim. Oh. Yeah. But they could hear the guns thundering away. Mm. Um, I mean, Alfred likened it to uh, sort of a neighbour pounding his sofa. You could mm. feel it through the through the walls. Goodness, war yeah. is such a terrible thing for everybody concerned. Well, his his attitude definitely changed during the war. Right at the beginning in December, just about the time he was joining up, there'd been an international outcry at these barbarian Germans who's shelling a, a medieval cathedral at, at Reims. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a very indignant piece saying, uh, where were all these cultural figures and artistic figures at the beginning of the war? They all crawled off and, and you know, became very patriotic for their, their own, you know, their own state, their own country mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. so on. And, uh, and uh, had no concern at all for culture. And now suddenly they're attacking the Germans for doing something that was what the Germans said was militarily necessary because the, the French had been using the tower, the, the, the steeple, as a, an observe, observation point to right. uh, yeah, target yeah. their artillery. Mm. Um, so, you know, there was, uh, you could see in this essay, you could see some kind of, you know, patriotic hysteria, you, you could say. Mm. But he was also making some very, you know, apt and fair comments about the way that the foreign powers had... You know, been dealing with Germany in the in the years before the mm. uh, um, the First World War. Interesting. Okay. Um, it's, it, mm. But um, during the war, he uh, definitely changed his his view, and he he really started to realise he could not withdraw from thinking about politics and thinking about the, the you know the national cultures that produce such kind of politics. And so how did his attitude to the war change then? Well, I mean, he, he, he hated the whole thing and he hated the militarism. He'd always been offended by the um, militarism and insistence on obedience to the state and so on, all the way through his schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, and this now, you know, he, he did have some conflicts with his military superiors Mm-hmm. At one point in the uh, during the war, because he thought the patients were being deliberately starved, and right. he couldn't get anywhere with his local uh, uh, higher ups, and so he went to the the, the regional command over the, over the head of the uh, the local hospital administration, and so the result was that they uh, he and his family had to uh, move down the road to. Uh, um, the town of Hagenau, which was just, uh, about halfway down the road so towards they were, Strasbourg. they were relocated because... Relocated was, to another hospital. He was being a nuisance. He was being a nuisance, or they, you know, they, 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 they couldn't solve the problem 
in uh, you know without getting rid of one of the one of the offending parties who's saying he was the junior so you know if, had to off go. he goes yes yeah. but there was good for him because he was much closer to Strasbourg which had a magnificent library and so he could uh, you know much more easily obtain um, sort of materials he needed mm. for his research on the Thirty Years' War. Mm-hmm. And so, um, nineteen eighteen came. How did he <clears throat> respond to um, German defeat? And... Well, there's, I mean, this this was an you know an incredible week of upheavals because you know nobody had expected the emperor to run away, the Kaiser to run away. Nobody had expected the social democratic leader to be proclaimed the leader of a republic from a balcony in, in, in Berlin. You know, there was no kind of constitutional authority to have, 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 have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had the, 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 the allies insisting on the Germans withdrawing according to an extremely tight timetable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, troops were sort of pouring in because, the, you know, this is the only bridge across the Rhine for about 100 miles right. uh, near Strasbourg. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was a real choke point in, in trying to evacuate, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, mm-hmm. as well as um, a lot of the Germans who'd been living in Alsace-Lorraine mm-hmm. since 1871 and now had to sort of become refugees because this area was going to become French again. Um, so he, he watched this, he watched the breakdown of discipline in among the troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the troops were, came marching along, you know, without their hats on and waving red flags. And, and so, you know, we've, we've, we've taken the guns off the officers and, and, uh, and so we're not going to listen to officers anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, in one way he was, he was horrified by this because it's a breakdown of discipline. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, in Germany is very strong on order, mm-hmm. you know. Everything must be in order. Right? Mm. So even someone like him, who'd been opposed to the militarism and strict discipline that was expected of the citizen, you know, and obedience to the state, mm. you know, he he was it affected somehow in his in his, in his stomach at, at at this lack of discipline. But then the other thing that struck him was the so-called revolution and the revolutionary claims seemed to have nothing to do with politics. It was all about, you know, um, when are we going to get fair wages? You know, when are we going to get enough to eat? When are they going to stop punishing us for, for minor infractions? And, mm. you know, this kind of little daily harassments of life was what these supposed insurrectionary revolutionaries were after. They didn't have the, the kind of um, big picture that Lenin was able to... Uh, hurl from the podium at the Russians, you know, mm. about the class warfare and, uh, and it was, they they just wanted to, you know, get on with a decent life. And it's, it's very interesting how uh, he wrote several essays in uh, late 1918, early 1919, that were published in um, uh, Berlin journals, describing the uh, the weeks of, of breakdown and uh, evacuation and so on. And then 20 years later, he turned it into rather magnificent fiction as the first volume of his big epic called November 1918. The first volume's never been published in English oh. because for some reason the, the translation that was produced in, uh, in the 1980s left out that first volume. But I have translated it and I'm having some discussions with my publisher. Hopefully it may come out uh, later this year. Oh, exciting. Interesting. Okay. Brilliant. Um, and so things were settling down in the early 1920s? Uh, it's 
difficult to see them as settling down okay. I think, because the, the the Versailles peace treaty uh, was disastrous for the Germans well disastrous for the rest of Europe as well as as John Maynard Keynes very perceptively pointed out you know the uh, the desire for punishing the Bosch uh, overrode kind of sensible statesmanship and so Germany was forced to pay huge amounts of reparations mm -hmm. for its having had sole guilt for starting the war, um, which meant that their currency was continually being devalued. Uh, you know, there, were, there, there was a dreadful devaluation in, in well, 1922-23, which, uh, you know, was a big shock. To, you know, the middle classes were basically wiped out. Um, and also, I mean, in, in the spring of 1919, in the district where Berlin, where uh, Dublin had settled uh, and was to remain until his exile in 1933 in the east of Berlin, in the Alexanderplatz area, mm -hmm. um, there was actually a workers' uprising against the, um, the Social Democratic government, which was basically controlled by the military and some very kind of fierce... Uh, factions within the military mm -hmm. which thought the civilians had stabbed them in the back mm -hmm. and therefore they should get their own back on these wretched civilians mm -hmm. and so this revolt in in the Lichtenberg area of Berlin mm -hmm. was put down with extreme savagery I mean they even used aeroplanes to bomb the uh, the streets oh, wow. and artillery to, to bomb the streets right. Dublin's own sister Meta was killed by shrapnel from a um, a grenade during the oh, fighting. Goodness. She'd gone out into the street to get milk for her children during this and, revolution, and got, and, and, and got a bit of shrapnel in her sides. Um, you know, they they laid her down. She felt faint when she got home, and they mm. laid her down in bed. Didn't know what was wrong with her, mm -hmm. and basically she bled to death. Oh gosh! Yeah. And so that must have had a, a massive impact on Derblin again. Oh yes, and of course his mother was also living in this this area, and she was very old and shaky by this time right. and she was devastated by the uh, the news yeah. yeah and so i i do feel like we need to get back to his um how this was all influencing him so what what was happening with him personally right um well i mean during the war he had he had two periods of quite serious stomach trouble where he had to go off for several weeks to convalesce right and he used this time to really focus on his next big topic for an epic, right. which was the Thirty Years' War. Okay. Right? He'd, uh, he was uh, convalescing and walking through a forest uh, near Heidelberg, I think this was, mm -hmm. um, and he'd come across a notice in a local paper about a Gustavus Adolphus festival. You know about Gustavus Adolphus? I don't, no. <laughs> he was the Swedish king, okay. a very, very pugnacious character who right. loved nothing more than dashing off into war. He'd had a nice war with Poland, okay. and then he could see Germany was in such a mess, and he thought, oh, I'll go dashing off into Germany and have another war there. Right. Pretending to be the protector of the Protestants. Okay. But in fact, he was very uh, kind of dismissive of the, the, the Protestant princes who... Uh, um, didn't really want his army coming through their territory and mm -hmm. causing turmoil. Um, but several Protestant areas in Germany would have an annual Gustavus Adolphus festival 
you know, obviously because, you know, it's us Protestants against those nasty Catholics Okay. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But they, they had this vision of the Swedish fleet sailing through the trees towards him. Right. <laughs> Which was, um, uh, you know, another one of these kind of um, triggers that somehow... He thinks, you know, right. acted within his within his mind. Yes, I've got it. I can make a story out of this. Yes, and he 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 then said, right, you know, he'd been casting around for his next topic. He'd been looking at uh, Byzantium, for example, mm -hmm. the the Crusades, mm -hmm. um, the uh, the Norman kingdoms in in Syria and 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 Sicily, mm -hmm. and so on. So he was definitely looking sort of back, you know, medieval and so on. But I mean, with all these guns booming away. In the, in, on, on the Western Front, yes. you know, the, the Thirty Years' War then crystallised as being a very sensible kind of theme to aim at. And now from that, is that what Wallenstein? This was Wallenstein, yes. Okay. And he, he had, you know, some good... So because he was able to get sort of uh, reader privileges at uh, un, uh, un, libraries in Strasbourg and in mm -hmm. Heidelberg and so on, he was able to obtain all kinds of, you know, quite obscure materials from the 18th century, including sort of books of sermons. I mean, in Wallenstein, there's some, there's a couple of gloriously gory sermons, you know, aimed at, uh, you know, drumming up support for the uh, the uh, the war and, oh. and so on. So he and he said sometimes, you know, he just wanted to incorporate, you know, whole books into his text. <laughs> <laughs> So this yeah. is the, the new big project. Exciting. Yes, very big. I mean, this turned out to be 900 pages in uh, in two volumes when it was Wow, published. so actually far bigger than Wang Lun. Nearly twice the size, mm. yes. Yes. But very little kind of wasted text. It's, it's just a huge... I mean, one critic described it as an enormous wall painting for short-sighted people. Okay, so very because there intricate so many, detail. Lot, like a like a like a mosaic, you know, and each mosaic is very very real and intricate. But if you move away, you know, it's just one little blob in a, oh. like a patch of colour. Yeah. Now, uh, Chris, uh, just briefly touching on on Valentine. I know we will go into more detail in later episodes. Yeah. Well. well yeah. My plan really is that we should cover the. Uh, epics that are already available in book form in English. Yeah. And then we'll can backtrack a bit and fill in the, uh, fill the in ones the that haven't yet been published. Okay, because yeah. I, I know that I read um, in one of your... Um, I, I read something about mosquitoes. Is that Wallenstein? Yes. Yes. That's oh, right. That's yes. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look out for that then, listeners. It's very right. exciting. No, in fact, I'm suggesting that the reading we do for this episode should be a, a very nice little excerpt from uh, from Valenstein. Oh, well, that leads yeah. us nicely into it then. Oh, are we right. ready, should... to, ready I mean, for a reading I now? feel maybe we are. are you, do you feel that we have covered what we wanted to cover? So the aim of this episode was to look at 1912 to 1922. Um, yeah, we could just look forward a little bit, perhaps, to what what was fermenting away in him at okay. the end of that decade, you know, in 1922. Yes. And he was already well advanced in thinking about his next big theme, which was the far future. Right. In mountains, oceans, giants. Interesting. And right? so this was, is this the 27th century? 27th century, yes. Wow. And then... Of course, beyond Mountains, Oceans, Giants, he then produced this most extraordinary and unexpected 
epic in verse. Manas. Set in, yeah, set in the Himalayas. Are you proud um, of me? Can you remembering all these titles? <laughs> Very good. Giving you My little tests all along, Katie. My yes. knowledge is, yeah. is growing and developing. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing is you can trace a steady kind of intensification of his 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 the way he applied his ideas mm. about language <clears throat> and the purpose of language in producing this you know, very solid sense of reality and in these was, different epic worlds. When was Mountains, Oceans, Giants published? 24. Or finished? 24. 24. It was and published when, in 24. When did he start writing it? Uh, he started thinking about it in around mid-1921. And so that we know that he uh, really enjoys going into detail in, in terms of his research. And so how do you go about researching a, a, fu a distant future then? Well, his... his um, initial impetus was this idea of melting all the ice on Greenland. And where did that come like where did that idea come from? Was it in the popular oh, right. media at the time? Uh, you know, well there was the... a lot yeah I mean there was quite a bit of sort of um, uh, uh, pulp science fiction uh, uh -huh. going around and so on uh, but he he said he wanted a he didn't want to go off to the stars mm -hmm. um, this was going to be an epic on the earth Right, expressing something about the Earth. So he started exploring maps of Iceland, okay. and uh, glaciology, and uh, volcanology, and ocean currents, and 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 so on. And he also, in, very interestingly, he also researched kind of African anthropology mm -hmm. uh, exhibits and literature and so on, which comes up very well. Uh, we're actually bleeding into the episode dedicated to mountains oceans giants okay. here let's so, not let's yeah. not talk any more about that then let's get on to our reading yeah so um what i've chosen there's there's a there's a delightful little scene it's barely sort of three paragraphs long okay um in uh valentine towards the, towards the end of valenstein so the war's already been going on for a couple of decades at this point okay Right. Um, so it's a perfect little scene. It paints a scene in words, in in a way that recreates the scene with great fidelity in the mind of the reader. Okay. Because each word is exactly in the right place to, you know, you can, you picture it. It's a picture. Um, and and can I just so is he still at this stage being precise with his language? Before we touched on, he didn't want to use similes and things like that he wanted the the words to paint the picture rather let's than... see how he does that in okay. in these three I paragraphs look, i look forward to that then right so it begins the camp near pilsen around the walls wooden huts tents hollows in the earth farmyards gradually becoming villages that punctuate miles of stubble fields and copses Near the town, surrounded by swampland, fringed by trenches and booby traps, accessible only by bridges, is the artillery. Noisy smoking smithies, patrolling sentries, cannon on wheeled trolleys. Here and there, black heaps of cannonballs on straw, covered by sailcloth. In the cold morning sun, sleepy powder monkeys carry huge tongs, long-handled shovels, logs for levers across to the artillery park. In little lean-tos, fletchers 
at clamp benches twist sinew for bowstrings. Occasional tumults of barking and shrill human shouts. Music, military march, slow tempo, across from the town wall, deep bass soldiers' voices. To war with a laugh and a curse, to war with a laugh and a curse, we add neither money nor purse. To Seven Gates Town we came, to Seven Gates Town we came, we had neither bread nor wine. We came to Friuli Sweet, we came to Friuli Sweet, not one with a bite to eat. The ensign marched alongside the many-plumed captain. A long pole braced at his midriff supported the stiff cloth of the standard on which was blazoned the captain's colourful coat of arms, fledgling birds stretching their necks up from the nest. The captain disappeared into a cottage and the company broke up. Three musicians continued to play in front of the cottage. Bells, drum, fife. Legs lifting daintily, loose hose to the knee, edged with long strips falling at the sides. Pointed shoes with ribbons and buckles. On their heads, big, wide-brimmed, tasselled huts. Children and dogs chased about them. Over the drummer's right shoulder, the button-studded leather strap from which the drum hung by his left leg. As one hand lay slack against the glinting rim, tapping rapidly, almost automatically, now loud, now soft, like a gurgling nightingale, the right hand lifted elastically, whipped back and forth to make sharp reports. The left hand incessant, the right now and then joined in its long rim rhythm as if pulled along, and then ratatted so vigorously on the skin that the drum shook against the raised knee and transmitted the vibration to the drummer's teeth. He smiled, eyes twitching. The bell player was a mere lad. His left hand rested languidly at his hip. The flowing silk scarf fluttered out behind him. In his right hand he held the yard-long pole, at its tip the glinting star with its hanging bells. His eyes wandered over the children as if he played for nobody, seemed free as the air. He stood rock-steady in a graceful pose, nothing moved, not head, foot, rump, just the two eyes, their lids, the right arm. Even the arm stayed mostly pressed to his side. The lower arm raised, the wrist turning. With the slightest twitch or turn, he could make the bells twitter, clang, boom, blare, proud and enticing like the noise from the beaks of a thousand birds. And when he swung his pole high as if raising a standard, shifted his legs, he lowered his head, gazed defiantly at the points of his shoes. The fife took the lead. It rested on the bandolier over his right shoulder. The piper stood still, attending to the melody. His mouth, his nimble fingers, gambled, lifted, pressed onto the hollow tube. They excited it, soothed it, caressed it like a beloved pet. He gazed soulfully from dark eyes. Wow. Gosh, I, as you were reading that, I was thinking it's very much like audio description, isn't it? For, for say like visually impaired audio description. He's so intense for every single little detail. It's almost, I mean, you said, so he was quite um, poor sighted himself. Yes. Do you, did he, I want, it made me wonder if he had looked at a painting 
uh, in his research or and and he had focused on a particular painting for different different parts or something like that because it is so visually descriptive yes i'm, I'm not sure what his um i mean he, he'd obviously attended very very closely to the way that musicians actually operate their Mm. instruments and mm. so on. I mean, it, 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 it's very direct, isn't mm. it? It's, I mean, it seems like there's nothing second-hand in there. It's all, you know, very directly observed. It's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. I can imagine as well for some people it's it might be a bit intense in terms... It might be overwhelming. It takes... Um, when you're wanting to finish a book or something, or not necessarily finish a book, but when you're wanting to move the story along, such so much focus on detail can be can be quite consuming. Quite um... well, this this is part of his technique. Was this kind of single, isolated, very vivid scene mm. will be followed by several pages of action. Okay. Or, you know, oh, narrative right. progress. Okay, so yeah. he's he's changing pace with his words. Then. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. But, and but, is he still? I know we we talked in um, the three leaps of Wang Lun. We were talking about how uh, almost um, cinema cinemagraphic cinema cinema. What's so the word? Cinematographic. Yeah, That's I was about to. I was about to <laughs> with the, mention that. Yeah. With the large sweeping landscapes. But I was the, going to say that the ah, first paragraph. Okay. The first paragraph is is a camera panning across yes. a landscape, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. And yeah. then it's like going, focusing in on, a, on detail. Yes. Interesting, mm. interesting. Well, thank you. I mean, that was great. Do you, I, I feel that we've, it's a good place for us to come to a close. I look forward to episode six. Okay. Can we touch on what that will be coming next? Well, I think, I think we need to talk about Mountains, Oceans, Giants. Oh, great. Because it's already been published. Yes. And it's the had next... a couple of, uh, you know, quite positive reviews. Our and, next epic. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. And that was published in 1924. One. Oh, oh sorry. The, the in published in German in 1924. Yes. And then in English almost a century later. A century in 2021. Okay, yeah. good. All right. Let's stop there then. Thank you so much, Chris. That was a, a really great episode today. Okay. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, Good. I think we're uh, yeah, I think we're a bit more relaxed than we were in the first. <laughs> we're getting into our stride yeah. now. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Till next time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Epic Worlds of Alfred Dublin. Join us next time to explore more about this fascinating writer's life and works. Meanwhile, visit the website beyond-alexanderplatz.com for posts about Dublin and some of his unjustly neglected contemporaries, as well as downloads of translations. So until next time, happy reading. <laughs>